welcome to Story Matters. I'm your host, Abby Farson-Pratt. Here at Journey Group, we have a few foundational beliefs. You have a story. It matters. And it's worth telling well. In this podcast, we hope to explore the trials and triumphs of designing narratives for humans. Today, we're going to explore how memory and metaphor shape the way we both tell and retell stories, whether that's a story enshrined in a family legend or a product of visual design. Every family has its own cherished collection of family fables. You know the kind. The tall tales that get told and retold and exaggerated and expanded whenever everyone's together. In my family, stories are embellished with every retelling to the point that outsiders, like my husband and my brother-in-law, can start beating us to the punchline or fact-checking us when we start to wade too far into the depths of hyperbole. In my opinion, this ruins the stories and our self-centered joy in retelling them, but we get over it and we still let them join us at the dinner table. Complicating our love of these kinds of family fables is the fact that we humans have notoriously bad memories. Every time we tell a story, we're telling it from scratch, and whenever we recall a story, our brains distort it. So here's what I want to know. Does the constant retelling of family stories strengthen our memories, or do we go totally off script every time? What are the details that seem important for one family member to preserve versus another, and why? To find some answers about the interplay between memory and family stories, I am lucky enough to have direct access to two brothers, Zach and Josh Bryant, both of whom work here at Journey Group. Zach is a creative director here, and Josh is our lead web developer. They have been around Journey Group for years and are an integral part of our life and work. I asked the brothers Bryant to tell a shared family story, but in separate rooms, without colluding on the details. So as an experiment, I wanted to merge their two stories together and see what differed. So without further ado, here is the cobbled together version of their story. Zach starts us off, and then you'll hear Josh cut in with his own retelling. There's a portion of this story that I was um, physically incapacitated and won't be able to remember. And so you'll have to get other eyewitnesses to fill in what for me is um, sort of a, a gap in the story. So apparently Z had been out um, in the common area behind our house, between all the houses on our street and the street behind us. There was a good area, uh, drainage ditch, um, some wood, uh, wooded buffers between the houses um, that was, I guess, county-owned, um, but was also our our play area growing up. In this particular season, I think it was the fall, I think we had gone back to school and I think we were playing football, it was football time. Um, And some guys, my my recollection is that some guys from like a neighboring neighborhood, Tall Timbers I believe, or something like that, had come over um, to play us in football. Zach had been back there with a couple of his friends. Um, He was probably, uh, you know, a teen, 16, 15, in that range, um, early in high school. And um, maybe he wasn't a punk, but certainly hung out with punks. Uh, maybe he was a punk, I don't know. Um, and he came across uh, a large group 
of older kids, of high schoolers. So they come over. I remember a guy named Philip, and I remember a guy named Eric. Um, and Eric's an important character because he was very, very big. Um, I think I was in either like eighth grade or ninth grade um, and was pretty scrawny. And Eric had was one of these guys that had you know probably had a mustache in like third grade. He had he had hit the curve, ahead of the curve, um, and was quite big and quite brawny as I remember him. Um, but we played football anyway, and there had been some. It went it went sideways. It went badly, and this is the part of the story where I don't remember what actually happened versus what um, the accusations were. I think what happened is my dog got out of my backyard and. Um, the guys from the other neighborhood were, like, picking on the dog and being mean to the dog in some manner, and I don't know how, uh, exactly how that expressed itself. But me or somebody responded by throwing rocks at these guys from a pretty far distance away. I don't think to hit them, I don't think I was good enough, I don't think I was good enough at throwing rocks too heavy even hit them if I'd wanted to, but I think it was more of a, um, uh, an encouragement to go back to their neighborhood and leave our dogs alone. Um, one of them had an issue with one of his friends or one of his friends caused an issue with one of them, um, said something stupid, scrawny kid uh, whose name I can't remember, totally picked a fight. Uh, and Zach being Zach knew that he was going to finish the fight if it got started. But one young man in particular that had been playing football on our side named Miller didn't make it over the fence in time and became, um, you know, they, they caught him. He was a prisoner <laughs> of the enemy. And uh, I think I think Hershey, my dog, had made it safely, and he was probably he was probably pretty unfazed by the whole thing. But Miller was very scared of what was going to happen to him. And I think these guys, Eric and Philip and their, their band, was pretty mad about the rock thing. Um, and so they were kind of punching on Miller a little bit and giving him a hard time and shoving him and knocking him down. And so the, the family legend has it that uh, as scrawny kid runs away, Zach steps in to take, take his place to protect uh, those littler and stupider than him. So I kind of went back out to, um, to talk to these guys and see if you know, some kind of peace could be brokered, at which point I was swapped in for Miller as the, the guy getting punched on. I think they were glad to accept me. <laughs> Uh, as a an upgrade, um, so Barabbas went free, <laughs> um, and I I started taking a beating. I think mainly from Eric, who again was you know at least seven foot, eight feet tall, two fifty, two sixty, as I remember, you know, pretty big guy. His fists were easily the size of my head, if not bigger. Um, and he kind of gets me against a tree, and he's just kind of wailing on me, boom, 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 left, right, left, right. I don't remember even fighting back. I might have, I might have made some feeble attempt, but I think I sort of saw uh, what was coming and assumed that, you know, just sort of crumpling and accepting my fate was the best plan. And then I come back into the story in the backyard uh, with my dad. Zach's friends come tearing across the field, screaming that they needed help. Um, my dad responds immediately, jumps the fence, runs out there, um, and me and my little sister are sort of peering around the bushes and trees trying to find out what we can find out. Um, I have clear memory of him lining these boys up. I feel like there were 15, 20 of them along a fence. Um, complete order and silence reigned and going 
boy by boy getting their phone number so that he could call their parents and have their parents come pick them up. And then the other part of that story, I guess, that I remember is later that evening, um, Eric was back at our house. I think my dad, like, called his house or something. This was not a guy that I knew. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't hang out outside of this at all. So it was weird to have him back in my front yard. Um, and I think my dad was essentially... Um, trying to create some some sort of war crimes guidelines around what the, what an appropriate amount of, of physical violence is, you know, there's a red line there around the use of force. And so I think Dad was trying to get, um, you know, create some sort of treaties between the two neighborhoods around what kinds of violence would be acceptable. What I love about this merged retelling is that we get this different array of perspectives and details from the brothers. Zach, obviously, is more of a central actor in the story, but then Josh comes in later with a crucial little brother perspective as a corroborating witness. So at this point, they have not heard each other's versions of this story. So to compare and contrast their respective memories, we brought them back together in the same room to discuss the similarities and differences. Okay, so the story that you told us um, involves you both at various points as both actors and eyewitnesses. Um, maybe you can both tell me why you think this particular story has been retained in the family legends. I think it, um, it has so many uh, telling characteristics of Zach come out in it. Um, I think uh, his bravery, uh, rebellious attitude, um, willingness to stand in for his friend, <laughs> uh, toughness in taking a, a serious beating, um, all stand out as a younger brother, as like, this was, this was one of the... And, and just getting into trouble. I mean... <laughs> There was, there was not just the toughness and the, the sort of laudable traits, but the finding yourself in a position where, like, 15, 20 older high schoolers... It was, like, 60 or 70. 70, 80, I thought, <laughs> yeah, are looking to, like, run you down and kick your butt. Uh, I, don't, I didn't experience that a whole lot, but I think, it, you know, maybe it was... Uh, it was a more common occurrence, I think, in my, <laughs> in my younger years. I don't, the only thing I agree with that you just said is the getting in trouble part. Like, <laughs> everything else I think is pure. I think I think that's what's very sweet in these retellings is that um, in Zach's version, he's um, stepping into the fray when someone is getting picked on, but he also identifies himself as responsible for some of the altercations that coming. maybe led up to the beating that seems out of proportion to the situation, but maybe you were involved in the rock throwing. Maybe you weren't. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but then in Josh's version, which is very sweet, although you weren't there for the whole thing, um, Zach is unequivocally the hero of the oh, story, yeah. um, which is very, very touching, I think. And indicative of the way that as younger siblings, we tend to think of our older siblings in mm -hmm. memory. Um, He's the hero until my dad steps in. Right, and then becomes the, even, then, yeah. the greater um, hero, who really takes turns. And turn. then the universe really 
is righted. Yeah, I'm sure Josh remembers this much better than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he was the hero. No, 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 that's <laughs> that's not, I didn't mean that. I mean, the bad part. I don't, I'm just so foggy. Well, you were I'm, literally foggy, I'd right? I suffered some brain trauma. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. It's that's hard to see through the yeah, blood. All I meant is I'm sure my telling is not good. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's, it's a well-told um, arc of maybe what is a common kind of memory for those of us who played outside and are with neighborhood kids and gangs that mm-hmm. ran around throwing rocks. Roving gangs areas. and youths. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will say, it's like Josh's version, uh, I don't think it's fair, but has gained some traction. Mm. <laughs> Occasionally people will buy me a beer. Even now, Miller has bought me beers. Uh, Wait, the same Miller from the story? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Joe occasionally will trot this story out. Um, which is pretty embarrassing. I just mean to say that whatever happened, I, I think my uh, culpability has somehow been overshadowed. <laughs> but I think that's what's part of the great part of the legend is that the we valorize, we need a hero yeah. in this story. And whether you were or not, you have become the hero in family memory, in neighborhood memory, which I think is particularly interesting. Memory, or our lack of it, affects the way we tell stories, as we have heard from these brothers. We depend on memory when we construct stories, but we also lean very heavily on metaphor, the verbal bridges that help us carry over a deeper meaning. I wanted to talk to someone who thinks very carefully about memory and metaphor, and so I coerced Greg Breeding into having a brief chat with me. Greg is the president and founder of Journey Group, and since Journey Group began in 1992, he has been refining the craft of editorial design in his role as a visual designer, working for numerous publications and brands, and as an art director for the U.S. Postal Service. Particularly, I have loved learning from Greg and the ways that he thinks very carefully about the interplay between memory and metaphor in his work. I got the chance to sit down with him to unpack these principles in depth. How do you think that basically cutting your teeth in editorial and magazine design influences the way that you work now? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, Because my design training was in the broad principles of graphic design, it's true that when I began designing a magazine, it, it focused those skills into a particular way of telling stories. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I remember falling in love with the idea of form, the way images and even type and color could create beautiful aesthetic spaces. But magazines introduced me to the way in which stories could actually influence people and that all the principles of design could actually amplify stories mm-hmm. and package them in a way that did more than just create beautiful spaces, it also actually had the ability to influence people. Mm. Um, So that sort of marriage, at least in my mind, between creating form and aesthetic spaces with the power of story has shaped the way I think about design ever since. How would you characterize the way that you've led the Journey Group team to basically coach our clients Mm -hmm. um, and friends to think about stories, maybe in spaces where they 
don't align it very much with narrative naturally. Yeah, the the impetus for me to think about it in magazines was largely through photojournalism. Mm. And the reason that's important is because, of course, photojournalism is all about images. And I learned early on that um, the way in which images were edited and presented and designed told the same story but from a different point of view than did the content. Um, and so that principle of the way in which the visuals can tell a part of the story in a different way has always captivated me. Um, and so the way I think about coaching our team with that idea is constantly trying to peel back the layers on how people are influenced by story, influenced by form. And that gets very particular. It looks like how do people respond to color? How do people respond to uh, texture? How do people respond to metaphor? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's true to say that as much as I've come to respect the content, the actual written word of storytelling, I'm sort of enamored with the way in which design tells that story from another point of view to hopefully enrich the communication and the influence that piece might have. Mm-hmm. My research in Basel started with just trying to understand metaphors generally. Um, whenever a story needs to be designed, the question becomes how do you bring that story to life visually? And often that looks like a metaphor. Um, and and as, a, as a designer and not a writer, it feels like you can get away with more almost visually than you can with the written word. There's a sort of a precision about writing that seems to um, engage people and that they respond differently. Then when you sort of see an image, there's, a, there's just kind of a mushy response to it. And so it just seemed interesting to me to figure out how that works. And so as I studied metaphor, I became intrigued by the idea that much of the way metaphor works comes out of just what it means to be a human being. And, and what I've been thinking about since is that I wonder if it's true to say that most of the principles of aesthetics, what we might call art and design, um, come out of just our experiences as human beings and they become almost objective. When it comes to particular ideas like um, what humans consider to be positive and negative experiences, um, we, we think of, for instance, someone who is sad as being depressed or down. Mm-hmm. And that probably comes from, from the reality that human beings sort of look down or are stoop-shouldered or bend over or their posture is sort of downward. And so somehow, over time, through evolution, we've come to associate down with sad or down with negative. Whereas you know, happy, optimistic people look up and they look around and they sort of engage the world and they're the sort of um, way of seeing everything is more open. And so we tend to think of up as a very positive experience. And so that is so obvious to us mm-hmm. that um, it makes me think that there's something there about the way metaphors work instinctively and viscerally that certainly happens with words but can be extended to images so that design can then sort of work with images in even more powerful ways. Mm-hmm. So the idea is not to do something new, it's to sort of understand what we've always been doing, to be more intentional about it, if that makes sense.
do you think it is that visual metaphor works so powerfully on us as people? Is it just because we have that instinct, as you've kind of alluded to, or have we acquired it through culture? Is it maybe both? Hmm. It does seem culturally rooted, um, because it, it would seem to suggest that some of our experiences in the world are based on the cultures in which we live. And so I think there's a way of creating metaphor that are definitely culturally based and oriented that work in that culture. So I think that's powerful. But I think it's deeper to say that all humans have similar experiences. Um, I'm thinking of, for instance, um, the way in which a human can think about what is near and far. Um, near and far in language can be expressed in a lot of ways, but, but visually and graphically, without using words, with using very simple design and images, you can create a sense of depth in an image that suggests the idea of near and far. No words are conveyed. It's not culturally bound. Um, it's only based on what, it, what I think is a human experience of living in a world where space matters, where near and far is a category that matters. Um, so again, I don't think it's complex. I don't think it's particularly deep. I think it's um, trying to understand what we're already doing every day when we communicate with each other, when we create stories and design, and just understanding that what we do actually has a lot of power. Um, and so I think it's also interesting that we have some responsibility to understand our craft, because if we're going to impose our work on the world, they have um, some right to know that we're being trustworthy with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So just understanding how metaphor works seems like there's a responsibility involved. What kind of counsel or advice would you give to designers trying to be careful or thoughtful about the metaphors they use? What kind of thought process, maybe even for yourself, as one of um, the few art directors for the U.S. Postal Service working on stamps and these tiny constraints, how do you yourself counsel your work um, to think about metaphors well? One of the questions that I'm still asking that I don't know the answer to is, as I mentioned earlier, images can be mushy, meaning, I think, that when you see an image, there are lots of ways that you can respond to it. And as a designer, you can't guide fully how someone will respond. That's not something you can actually control. And so there's a sense in which it's actually interesting to watch and see how people respond to the same images differently based on their own experiences and who they are. And um, that can be a really rich, rewarding experience. I think that's probably true in, in reading and in literature as well, right? Um, yet, I still feel like there needs to be, at least when it comes to stamp design, where I spend a lot of my time and where the opportunity to communicate is literally only about an inch or so uh, square um, to make sure that the image is making a point, that there's a, a clarity in the message, that there's an intention behind the image, even though you have to know that people are going to be responding to it in all kinds of ways you can't anticipate. So I suppose my advice would be to start with an intent, to not just create images that are, are um, intriguing or um, you know, that might just explode all kinds of ideas into your mind. Of course they will. But just to have a purpose, an intent, a goal to achieve when it comes to communicating visually, um, I think that's important. I think it's important not just because of the idea of being responsible, but I tend to think it's just more effective to 
distill an image to its essence, to have a clarity about what you're trying to say. And then if it inspires, and you hope it does, people to have more imagination, to bring their own experiences to bear, then hopefully that's a richer experience of engagement. Hmm. On that hopeful note, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to learn from you when you get to talk about these ideas. You're very welcome, Abby. My pleasure, too. Ashley Walton, who is an art director here at Journey Group. Ashley, you've been around Journey how many years? For about eight years now. Okay. And yeah. as soon as we decided on the subject for this episode, it's like, I have to talk to Ashley <laughs> because we're talking about memory and metaphor. And Ashley is delightful in many ways. She's known for many things around the office, mm-hmm. just being super cool and mm-hmm. wearing great clothes, always smelling really good. Yep. I tend to shower. Um, yeah. Frequently. Great hygiene. Yep. Um, but she's also known for this very delightful trait of mixing up her metaphors mm-hmm. and idioms. Shooting at the hip. Real estate mongol. Friends, lovers, countrymen, lend me your ear. That's just water under the creek. Well, the ball's in your park. Resting on their loins. Some of these... I think they, they kind of come out like in the course of the day, like while working, right? Sure. Yeah. Nothing really brings them on. They just, they just kind come of come out you. of thin air. I'm usually pretty adamant I'm saying the right thing. <laughs> right. So an example of um, a delightful Ashleyism, just there's one um, shooting at the dark. Shooting at the dark. Yep. There's, there's also one. a second one that's kind of a, a riff is shooting at the hip. <laughs> Which no one wants to get a shot at the hip. No, that sounds terrible. I think you usually shoot from the hip, but I was pretty adamant it was shooting at the hip. (laughs) Um, I I also particularly love, as someone who is not super well-versed in sports, your mixed-up sports metaphors. Mm -hmm. There's a Um, few. There's a few that we have heard from you, such as the balls in your park. The balls in your park, Abby. (laughs) Yeah, do what you need to do. It's in your park. (laughs) Um, You guys, I'm taking you to right field. Yeah, we're going there. I don't even know what that one is a riff on. I Um, think it has something to do with a foul ball, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't even know what a foul (laughs) ball is. I think you do. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's um, some other ones that are just related to other elements of culture and life such as um, an old witch's tale. Yeah. Instead of an old I'm wives. not sure if you've heard of that. It is an old witch's tale. <laughs> it's like a darker version of an old wives' tale. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think another one that I really love that you said apparently when you were a little agitated by something is mm-hmm. that this is burning my blood. Oh, yeah. My blood was burning. <laughs> I think what I love about the Ashley idioms is that they're always really close so that people know what you mean. Yeah. But there's just a word or two. Yeah. Different. Often their first letter is the same, too. Like, this is burning my blood. You know, after I sat with it a little bit, realized I was trying to say, this is making my blood boil. So it's the BB is still yeah. there. It's just right. a different word for boil. You preserve, yeah, you burning. preserve the power of the yeah. original idiom. Sure. It's just a little Ashley Walton twist. Some say I make it better. <laughs> I think I it really depends on the idiom. Yeah. One of my favorites is water under the creek. 
<laughs> because that's just impossible. But you could start to imagine it. Right. That there could be some deep reservoir. Sure. It's just water under the creek. It's just water under Don't the creek. Don't worry about it. Don't you worry about it. Memories, as we've heard, aren't perfect. And metaphors, whether verbally or visually, can affect us in very lasting, powerful ways. As human beings, we're drawn to stories with these qualities, narratives that trouble or move or influence us. These are the tales that stick with us long after they've been told. And as designers, we look forward to pondering the challenges and opportunities of story in our very busy age. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. My name is Michael Bryant, and I'm the dad of Zach and Josh. What I wanted to ask you is, what do you remember about that day? Because we know that you kind of come into the story um, after it's happened, where I guess, does a neighborhood kid come tell you, like, Zach's been knocked out? Um. I'll say this, that until Zach called and said, hey, Dad, you remember when I got knocked out? I wasn't remembering the story. But um, once he mentioned uh, the name, it popped right into my head. So that's it's funny how memories work, isn't it? Mm-hmm. My, my re- recollection of it is I was doing what dads do, mowing the grass or something like that. And uh, blissfully unaware of the goings on out in the common area of our neighborhood. And if I remember correctly, and maybe this is the part of the imagination part, is that the, somehow Zach got involved uh, in defending the honor of the even smaller kid, or somehow there was there was. I think it was he was not really supposed to be in the middle of it, but you know how Zach is. So it was unusual for him to. I mean, I think this only happened once and that I know of that they were willing to let me know about. Um, and this was the, the time, you know, Zach stood in for his friend and got his butt kicked. Story Matters is a production of Journey Group, an independent design company based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our theme music is by Evenings. Thank you for listening.